0: You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Welcome to the Code Red podcast of Secure America Now. I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now. As we speak, elected officials have abandoned their duty to uphold the law in the United States. We have rioters running through our streets, New York, California, other parts of the country. Um, We have what appears to many to be a chaotic situation, and I would like to start off by asking you two questions. The first one is, what should law-abiding Americans think about what is going on? And number two, What should the president of the United States be doing to address this crisis?
1: Well, I think you have several different things coming together at the same time. I think you have uh, the effect of being locked down because of the virus. You have the effect of a government-induced depression through the lockdown. Uh, Now you had the effect of uh, both, I think, a genuine response to George Floyd being killed in a way that was so graphic uh, that it was impossible to see it without just being enraged, combined with what has been a very long gradual buildup uh, for over 20 years of the hard of the hard left, uh, which wants to destroy America. And uh, I described this the other day as, as a, you know, a war against the United States. That's clearly the goal of Antifa, for example. And all the reporters who tell you Antifa doesn't exist have to now explain how come this this non-existent organization has occupied six blocks in Seattle, created a a non-U.S. zone, taken over a police precinct, and uh, basically set up roadblocks so that people have to be approved by Antifa to walk in the six block area. And the mayor is totally complicit And the governor, as a little while ago, didn't even know what had happened. So this is the sort of thing we're going to. And I I saw a really heart-wrenching letter from a policeman who was a third-generation policeman who loved his work, was hoping one of his children would become fourth-generation. Who said that what's happened with the assault on the police is so bad that he is personally leaving the profession, and he would never encourage any of his children to go go in. And he had a, a line that I thought was very foreboding. He said, when Minneapolis becomes Mogadishu, uh, don't be shocked because the American people did it to themselves. And I think we have to understand, we're, we're right at the tipping point, I think, where the forces of disorder uh, and theft uh, may begin to outweigh the forces of law and order, uh, very different than in the 60s and 70s.
0: So how should the president, President Trump, respond to this? What should the federal government be doing today? There was one comment that I saw that President Trump had actually told people or the elected officials in Seattle that if they don't clean up the city, if they don't bring law and order to the city, he will do that. What are his options? How should well, he...
1: Well, I mean, all, ultimately, he has the same options that Abraham Lincoln had. I mean, <clears throat> you can't have a section of the United States which declares itself to be outside the United States. That's called secession. We had that argument. The side that wanted to secede lost. So I think you've got to start with the re- re- recognition. We'll see how this plays out over the next couple of days. But, but certainly, sending in the FBI preparing to arrest all these people for what is, in effect, treason. I mean, if if you set up an anti-American zone, uh, you're engaged in treasonable behavior. And I think at this point, it ought to be handled at the police level, not the military level. Uh, But if necessary, the next stage would be to call out the Washington National Guard. And you'll notice that when they actually finally got around to calling out the Minnesota National Guard, Rioting stopped pretty rapidly because they could, they had 13,000 people in uniform to back up the police. So, the president, I think, first of all, has to stand unequivocally for the law. He ought to stand for larger police forces that are better trained, not smaller. Uh, <clears throat> he should vigorously oppose things like, San, like Los Angeles cutting 150 million dollars out of its police budget. Uh, and I think. He should also make very clear that we were all told there was, by the media there was no damage being done, et cetera. Well, how come the mayor of, of uh, Minneapolis is saying he's going to need at least $55 million to fix the damage that apparently wasn't done by the rioters that apparently weren't rioting? I mean, at one level, the, the guiltiest people here are the news media who consistently lied to the American people about what was going on. And are still
0: lying about it. We have a situation, as you know, uh, for many, many years, we've allowed local, whether states, cities, counties, to create what they called sanctuary cities, where huh. the federal laws of our country uh, were not upheld and sanctuary was given to those lawbreakers. Do you think that that contributed? To where we are now uh, in terms of this open defiance
1: of the sure. law yeah, I mean what what happened was you had people who decided local mayors, local County Commission, some cases local governors, that they would simply not obey the, not obey the law, and that's what, that's what we're talking about is you have the right to not obey the law as an elected official who is sworn in with an oath to uphold the law? And I think that's what you're saying. Apparently, I I have not seen it yet, but I I have received video of a uh, Seattle, Washington, city councilman helping lead Antifa into taking over the six square blocks. Well, this person clearly has broken his oath of office. uh, And it's a good example of where we should be using the FBI to go in and arrest him and get him off the street. And arrest him under federal law, because a lot of these states now have this goofy rule where there is no bail. You know, you walk in, you get a ring, and you walk out. The, in New York City the other day, they had a bank robber who robbed a bank and was arrested. They let him out. Robbed a second bank and was arrested. They let him out. Robbed a third bank, was arrested. They let him out. Robbed a fourth bank, they arrested and let him out. Fifth bank, and when they picked him up after the sixth bank robbery, I mean, I think he was trying to go back to jail. When I picked him up after the sixth bank robbery, he said to the policeman, why do they keep letting me out? <laughs> it's just, but that's how crazy it is right now.
0: You know what, uh, the governor of New York, uh, Andrew Cuomo, he says the legislature passed legislation which allows these people to get out of prison. He never mentions that he signed that let that
1: legislation. Say he- he could have vetoed it at any time, but, but but Cuomo has been so misleading on so many different fronts that it's sort of amazing. I mean, if you look at his whole record with nursing homes and COVID, where thousands of grandparents died because of Governor Cuomo's uh, terrible policies. Can,
0: can you expound upon that a bit? Explain what did Cuomo do that led to that?
1: Well, Betsy McCoy did a podcast with me uh, at Gingrich 360. And uh, she believes, as former lieutenant governor of New York and and one of the smartest health analysts in the country, she believes that it was the impact of uh, what she says is an $8 million a year lobbyist for the New York Hospital Association. And they didn't want anybody with COVID in the hospitals. And so they convinced the governor to send them back into nursing homes to keep them out of the hospitals which meant, which is the opposite, by the way, what the Center for Disease Control advised. And Cuomo again lied to the public by suggesting he was only doing what the CDC advised, which is not true at all. Uh, but what so in effect, because of Cuomo's decision, people were going into the most dangerous places in the country with the most vulnerable populations, and it spread like wildfire. The second thing they did is in New York, if you were dying of COVID but you were not technically dead when you left the nursing home, they did not count it as a nursing home death. So there's some speculation that they may have actually had twice as many people dying in nursing homes as they reported because as long as you could get them to the hospital before they died, uh, it did not count as a nursing home death, even though everything bad had happened to them in the nursing home.
0: It it is such a monumental tragedy what occurred. And um one of the things that I find disturbing is that even after the facts come out, the governor and there are others do the same thing. They don't even admit that they've made a mistake. Right and uh, Well and,
1: and, the, and the New York the New York media is so intensely pro Cuomo that they don't want to investigate it and they don't want to go after him. So in effect, they're his accomplices in covering up the death of thousands of grandparents.
0: I will um, just pose one other theory uh, as to why he didn't, why he did direct people into the nursing homes, which were ill-equipped. Everybody knew that they were ill-equipped. They're not equipped to do this type of stuff, period. That's that their nature. My theory is, is that He had over 4,000 hospital beds open in New York. They were provided by the federal government. He and the governor of New Jersey, Murphy, did the same thing. They did not direct patients to the USS Hope, to the Javits Center, because they didn't want President Trump to get any credit for having provided beds.
1: That may have been the case, but it could also have been the case that they wanted to make sure that the local hospitals uh, were getting all the patients uh, so that they could make money out of having filled up the hospital.
0: What do you what do you make of the closing down of schools now also talk about extending? the closing down of schools because of the coronavirus?
1: Well, I think it's crazy. I mean, I think the fact is, first of all, uh, young people are the least affected by the virus. Second, I think you can do social spacing with the teacher and the other adults. Third, uh, if we're going to compete with China, we can't keep producing people who are ignorant. And so the idea that you're going to tell kids, and this, by the way, directly affects working, because if you're a working parent, and all of a sudden your child's going to be home all day, every day, you may not go back to work. So we're we're compounding the the challenge of uh, getting the economy growing again.
0: One of the things that has come out of the coronavirus that I think is positive is that we now have widespread agreement, even across party lines, that China is a huge problem, that we have allowed, among other things, our medications to an overwhelming degree, 90% of generic drugs are being produced in China with no supervision. They don't have to meet FDA um, uh, compliance. Uh, What do you think should be done? And do you see any signs of the US government taking action to in fact stop this dependence on China?
1: Yeah, I think, first of all, I do think you're right that there's a dramatically growing awareness of how dangerous China is and that we had misjudged it. I wrote a book last year called Trump versus China where I outlined in my own thinking how I had changed over the last 10 years because the Chinese in fact did not modify, did not become more open. If anything, it's a more totalitarian regime than at any time since Mao Zedong. So I think that that awareness of China has, has grown pretty dramatically. I think a general acceptance that the Chinese, whether deliberately or for whatever reason, grossly mishandled the virus and uh, probably caused uh, hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths and trillions of dollars of economic damage. Um, and I think in that sense there's a pretty strong feeling uh, that, that we have to take action. Uh, you, you're seeing uh, presidential executive orders, you're seeing steps by various uh, administrative agencies and you're seeing bills begin to move in Congress, all of which will be designed I think to uh, encourage businesses to move back to the U.S. to get out of China uh, and frankly I'd rather have them in Mexico or Guatemala than in China. So. I think there are certain advantages for us in our own hemisphere. Uh, And I I think you'll see the president continue the tariffs that he's imposed. So I I think, uh, and we'll put more pressure on China about stealing intellectual property.
0: We recently had Steve Moore on this podcast, and we were talking about his campaign to open up America, put America back to work and uh, your name came up in the podcast with Steve. Can you talk about what America should be doing in terms of opening up? Uh, Should we still be overly concerned about the virus? Um,
1: Just I think I think that there are certain habits that we're going to have to acquire, uh, including washing your hands and maintaining some social spacing unless it's a member of your immediate family. Um, But I also think that we'll get better and better therapies. Uh, I'm talking to you from Rome, Italy, where they had a terrible problem because there were um, 10,000 Chinese, 100,000 rather, there were 100,000 Chinese workers in northern Italy, uh, many of them from Wuhan. Uh, They kept allowing the Chinese to fly in for several weeks after they knew there was a pandemic. Uh, by contrast what President Trump did in cutting off the flights, probably saved thousands of American lives. So Italy got to be in very bad shape. They closed the country down for 10 weeks, uh, basically close to work from home as the ambassador to the Vatican, and I basically did all my work, as I'm doing with you right now, uh, from home. But um, now they're beginning to open up, and, and people are beginning to go out, restaurants are opening up, I think that the same thing we do in the U.S. We, we should have people um, to, to the maximum degree possible going back to a normal life, and I think that as long as they're prudent and they take care, uh, overwhelmingly now uh, in Italy, for example, 83 or 85 percent of the people who get the virus uh, are now uh, being cured at home. They're not going to the hospital. So I, I think I think if you're over 65 or 70. You have to be very, very careful. If you have a, some kind of comorbidity, some condition, if a heart condition or a respiratory condition, you have to be very, very careful. But other than those two groups, most people, I think, should regard this as, at worst, a serious flu, and and not. And I think they're finding that in fact, the mortality rate among people under 60 years of age uh, is dramatically less than they thought it would be.
0: We have, uh, from the beginning of the lockdown and the virus coming to the United States, we have had, especially in New York, where Cuomo turned New York into the epicenter of the crisis, we have had a parade of uh, the Bill Gateses, the Michael Bloombergs of the world lecturing us of how Life will never be the same or even look like anything you've done before. We're going to restructure. We'll have a new normal. One area which I'd like you to comment on about this drive for a new normal is to turn this year's elections into a totally write-in proposition that polls would not be open, that people will not vote the traditional way. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, look, if if you're a Democrat and you're trying to steal the election, that's a pretty good way to do it. Uh, I just did a a podcast at Gingrich 360 uh, with with Hans von Strakowski, who is the uh, election fraud expert at uh, the Heritage Foundation. And uh, they have tons of information about vote theft. And uh, I also did a a podcast about uh, Nancy Pelosi's $3 trillion bill. And I I had a special section on all the ways in which they want to create an election in which uh, you don't have to prove who you are. You don't have to have any kind of identity. You don't have to have anyone else vouch for you. You can basically sign a note that says, I really am who I claim I am. You can show up on election day and do that. uh, And there, there are no controls. Uh, and I think that there's a reason that they want the the minimum controls because I think that as they discovered in California with with, uh, with bundling and vote harvesting, um, which is which is inherently destructive of your right to a secret ballot. I and mean, if somebody comes around picking up ballots, the odds are that, that particularly if, if you're older and you're insecure, that they're going to look over your shoulder and make sure it's the right, you know, you're casting the right ballot. Um, I think it's just it's an invitation to corruption. Can
0: you comment on what the 1619 project of the New York Times is and whether you think this is the ultimate goal of these protests and to not only remake American society? but reconstituted of what America it's founded.
1: Yeah, I, I, the way I would describe it is, I think you've got um, a substantial part of American inke- intelligentsia who are anti-American. They regard America as a bad country. Uh, they they uh, use a vicious language to describe us. Uh, they've grown enormously in power and influence, uh, and uh, I always tell people that Reagan beat communism in Moscow, but he lost to it at Stanford, uh, and so what you've had is an academic elite, which then trained a generation of people who became the reporters, and the uh, and you just saw this with the rebellion at the New York Times, where publishing a op-ed by a conservative U.S. Senator who was a veteran from the middle in the, in the war in the Middle East was such a terrible offense against uh, the left that uh, they forced out their opinion page editor. He had to resign. You saw the same thing just happen at the Philadelphia Inquirer, where they had published an article about damage to buildings, and and it was entitled uh, "Buildings Matter" also, and that was seen as an attack on Black Lives Matter. And so the the, the entire uh, cast of reporters got this guy fired within like three days. Uh, so so what you're seeing is the rise of um, an anti-American elite determined to impose its will, having people like Antifa as its fighting wing, very much like the rise of fascism and Nazism and communism uh, in the 20s and 30s. It's, to me, as a historian, it is very sobering. To watch the kind of things that are underway. Uh, and I'm glad the president has declared that Antifa is a terrorist organization. And I think, frankly, we're going to have to uh, track down and ultimately arrest and lock up a surprising number of Antifa members because they are both violent and deeply, deeply anti American. Uh, Newt Gingrich, uh, is there a hope for America? Sure. I mean, look, we. We came through a a very long revolutionary war against the most powerful nation in the world. I wrote uh, several novels about it, and in some ways, the the most desperate moment in American history was Washington crossing the Delaware on Christmas night uh, in the middle of a snowstorm with ice in the river, uh, because he really thought if they could not win a victory, that the army would melt away and the revolution would be over. Uh, Lincoln comes along and uh, Wages are our, our bloodiest war, and uh, you know there, there there's a point where the the Union wins at Gettysburg, and two weeks later has to send part of the Union Army into New York to put down anti-draft riots. I mean, uh, it's, it's easy to to exaggerate where we are. In the late 1960s, um, the uh, hard left, uh, who really are the parents of the current generation of, of anti-Americans, uh, the hard left set off 2,500 bombs in an 18-month period. We we tend to forget this. So uh, the question in my mind is, because this this time much more even uh, than in the 60s and 70s, although if you read Theodore White's uh, extraordinary books on the making of the president in 1968 and the making of the president in 1972, uh, he already has captured what he said was the the, the rigidity of moving from a liberal ideology to a liberal theology and he's already captured the degree to which uh the american news media has become captured uh, at the boston globe new york times washington post by people who are so far to the left that it was impossible for them to cover the news anymore uh so you're really watching a, a long game that, the, that has been building momentum and where we're going to have to really think through i, I actually went back today and uh, reread. Um, section of Reagan's farewell address where he talks about that the, one of the great uncom- uncompleted jobs was to codify American history so people really learned about the country, and that he worried very much about the, the degree of anti-American falsehood that was being built into our schools. Well, unfortunately, we didn't win that fight, and we're now paying the price for it.
0: I'd like to uh, bring this podcast to a close with you commenting on a slightly different uh, topic, which is scientists have been caught being wrong with their predictions in terms of the coronavirus. Uh, This whole pandemic has not played out, thank God, to the degree that they said that it would play out. Do you think that uh, the belief in science has taken a big hit here? Um, these experts who seem yeah, to quickly change their point of view as to what you should or shouldn't do. Go ahead. sorry. I,
1: I think with the average American, there's more skepticism than there used to be. Uh, it's very clear that the projections were wrong. Uh, but look, we, we've been through at least since the late 60s. We've been through a series of what I would call catastrophism. Uh, you know, Paul Ehrlich promised all of us that um, we would we were going to end up with uh, Britain would be starving to death by the year 2000. And Ehrlich you know, is a tenured faculty member at Stanford and lost no prestige despite the most idiotically false statements. So you can go down this long period. When you get to a point where you have a teenager from Sweden Lecture of the United Nations about a topic that she knows nothing about. You know that you're you're involved in a series of mass delusions, and it's in the, to some extent the 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 catastrophe reaction to um, the, to the to COVID was was exactly in the same pattern uh, where the news media picked something up. Uh, it's I have to close this because I got to do something else, but I'll just say. Remember that every weatherman would like every storm to be a potential hurricane because it means you'll watch the weather.
0: <laughs> Great note to sign off All right. on.
1: Thank very Good much. to be with you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.